Well, it is always an honor to worship the Lord together as a family in community. Uh, it's been a beautiful week without all that snow. As you can see, I'm in spring mode with my nice spring shirt on because I just love the warm weather. Uh, well, we are continuing in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We are doing a mini-series called Scary Love, where we are looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and seeing how the love that we're called to as believers, for believers, with one another, is a scary type of love. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump right into the Word together. Heavenly Father, we are so appreciative of all that you have done for us, all that you have given, all that you will give, and all that you are currently giving. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will fall fresh upon us this morning. That as we open up your word and we see what you have for us this morning, that it won't just be about education where we learn something new. But your word is living, active, and breathing so that we can be transformed and become someone new. We thank you in advance for all that you will say and do. In your name, amen. Amen. I have a, a picture on the back of a friar named Maximilian Kolbe. And Maximilian Kolbe was a priest, a Polish priest, during the Nazi regime. And as a Polish priest, he was sneaking in Jews into his church, feeding them, caring for them, and making sure that they were safe. Well, eventually, as happened often with those who were harboring Jews, he was discovered and then imprisoned. He wasn't just imprisoned in any normal prison, he was imprisoned in Auschwitz, which many of you know and have heard of, the worst concentration camp during the Nazi regime. Maximilian Kolbe, he went there and willingly submitted to what the Nazis were doing to him in the concentration camp, because he did not want to cause any more problems for anyone else around him. In fact, there was one point while he was in Auschwitz where they were taking people and throwing them into solitary confinement as a group in order to starve them. They wanted to see what would these people do to each other while they were starving and thirsty. And they were choosing people at random, and there was one person that they picked, a, a young man, who they said, now it's your turn, you have to go into this room of starvation. Well, the guy cried out, I have a family, please don't do this to me. And as Maximilian Kolbe, the friar, was there, he heard the cry of this man, and he raised his hand and he said, I will take his place. And so Friar Kolbe took his place. They were in this, this room together of about 10 people, and for weeks they were without food, and they were constantly starving, and one by one they were dying. Maximilian Kolbe, while he was in there with them, he prayed with them. He told them of the good news of Jesus. He prayed that they would find salvation. And he spent every moment worshiping Jesus and praying over them and encouraging them. Even as they were dying, they were encouraged by him. In the end, he was the last one standing. It was it. It was down to him. And he, when they said, it's time for you to die, we're not going to starve you anymore, we're just going to kill you. Surprisingly, he offered his hand for the poison to enter his veins, saying, Jesus is with me. And he died. Now that story is intense, and it's one of those ones that you think of, who would do that in this world today? 
We live in a very selfish culture where we would not lay ourselves down for our brother or sister much rather than a stranger. But Maximilian Kolbe, he embodies the idea of scary love where he sacrificed himself. But today, much of the time, we live in the kingdom of self. Self is more important than others. What we want becomes more important than anything or anyone else. We live in the kingdom of self. Even as believers, we find ourselves living in our own kingdom, where we are on the throne. We might move into the kingdom of God for a moment, doing what we we know God wants us to do, but when it becomes too sacrificial, when it becomes too difficult, often we go back into the kingdom of self. Because we don't want to sacrifice that much. But scary love is about self-sacrifice. Last week we talked about releasing entitlement. And this is a very good, that was a very good segue into the how, which is sacrificing self. David Benner, he said this, To truly receive love, to become love, we must be prepared to surrender the keys of the kingdom of self. Surrendering the keys over to God of the kingdom of self in order to truly love, we must die. Now, everyone's really excited about today's sermon, aren't you? I've gotten emails, phone calls, and text messages this last week where people were very frustrated with what I was preaching because it was making them have to change some things in their lives. That's the word of God. Right? The Word of God does that. The Word of God cuts us in the middle and splits us and says, it's not about you, it's it's about me. And when we learn about love, this is one of those things that cuts to the heart of the human condition, selfishness. And so we are going to be looking at this scary love in the aspect of self-sacrifice. The question that we've been asking in this mini-series on scary love is this, why is true love scary? And how do we practice it? Why is true love scary and how do we practice it? We're going to return back to 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 5 where we're going to look at uh, just momentary as we read this reminding ourselves of the entitlement that needed to be gone out of our lives but also moving into the deeper sense of sacrificing self. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 5. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It is not irritable or resentful. From this passage, we're going to be focusing on the it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And so the first thing we can see from this portion of Scripture, true love is scary because true love does for rather than demands from. Paul says love does not insist on its own way. True love does for rather than demand from. So here, Paul, remember, if we are looking at this passage, this is not an ode to marriage. Now, is it, is it good and appropriate to understand this in the realm of marriage? Absolutely. But Paul is not using it as a marriage passage. He is talking to the church about how believers are to love 
one another. We saw that we are to be kind, that we're to offer mercy and forgiveness. We talked about how we're to be patient with one another, where we're going to suffer long with one another, where he is assuming that we are going to wound one another as we are in community because hurt people hurt people. Broken people bring with them brokenness if they do not surrender it to the Holy Spirit. This transpires in our relationships, but even in the midst of that, we are to be patient. And we are to be kind. And we are not to insist on our own way. We are not to demand from, but to do for. Now this is difficult in relationships. Because we live in a transactional society that says, I will do this for you if you do this for me. We try to get our own way in the kingdom of self. We want to be on the throne. And so we demand our own way in many spaces. We say, I need this to be done. You will do this for me. And we also live in a society where people will try to manipulate others based off of love. I'm sure you've heard someone say this to you. Maybe it was your child. Hopefully it was not your spouse. Maybe it was your father or your best friend where they say, if you love me, you'll do this for me. If you really love me, you will let me eat ice cream for breakfast every morning. If you really love me, you'll let me stay home from school today. If you really love me, you'll buy me that Lexus that I've been eyeing for many, many years. We have this sense of entitlement and self-appreciation in our lives. But let me tell you this. The one who is manipulating in the name of love is not actually loving. We need to be wary of people who manipulate in the name of love. We don't often hear that. That's not something that's talked about often. But when someone is trying to use love to manipulate you, that is not love. There should be a desire to do for you. It says, how can I serve you? In this relationship of community, how can I bless you? Not how can I be blessed, but how can I be the one doing the blessing? This is an important aspect of love, where we sacrifice ourselves for one another. Because death to self is contrary to our culture, but it is key to true love. Death to self is contrary to our culture, but it is key to true love. Love does not demand someone to do something. Love seeks to do for. And it's important for us to note in our own lives, because we are failed and flawed human beings. There will be times in our lives where we do try to demand from other people. And that should be a red flag where the Holy Spirit says, hey, you're not really loving because love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Allow this idea of when you are insisting on your own way to become a red flag to your heart where the Holy Spirit's knocking and says, That's actually not really loving. And I think this is important, not just in family, but in church family. How are we treating one another? Are we going after what we want from others? Or 
Are we sacrificing ourselves and saying, I'm going to go counter to the culture of this world, and I'm going to seek how I can serve others? How can I serve others? This is difficult, right? We've been stepping on toes all the way through this series. The Bible's been stepping on my toes. As I'm writing this, I'm like, do I really have to live that out before I tell it? (laughs) That's not fun. Do I really have to live as someone who serves others? Is that really the biblical call of love? And yes, yes, it is the biblical call of love. Because love is sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. You simply cannot divorce sacrifice from love. You cannot. If you are to experience true biblical love, love is sacrifice. When we see that God is love, how did God display that to us? sacrifice. When we see that God is love and he's calling us to love as he loved, what does that look like? Sacrifice. If you are to understand love, sacrifice is a part of the equation. And this is why double-stuffed Oreos cannot love me. And this is why I cannot love double-stuffed Oreos in true nature. Because I'm not sacrificing anything except my waistline. Love is sacrifice. If you take nothing else from what we look at today, capture those three words. Love is sacrifice. When we demand or insist on our own way, that is not sacrifice. That is asking someone else to sacrifice for us. That hurts, doesn't it? When we insist on our own way, we're not loving. We are not loving. And last week we talked about entitlement, where we said that we are owed nothing. None of us are owed anything. You and I are not owed anything. We are entitled to nothing. But when we let that go, we understand the reality of our lack of entitlement. I'm going to draw something again. Hopefully it's up there. It will be soon, I promise. I think. I liked, everyone liked the drawings I made, even though they're very Uh, immature drawings. Hold on, let me just see if this is working properly. says it's connected. Oh, well, I will, uh, I'll continue on. We can move it back over there, Wanda. What I was going to draw was this, this picture. When you think about this idea of sacrifice, when Hillary and I, we talk in, in marriage counseling, we talk about it as the sense of getting each other's backs. Now, my brother, he, he draws really funny stick figures. His stick figures are way better than mine. And he draws this stick figure that's hanging up in my mom's house. I don't know why my mom leaves it there, but she does. It's this picture of a stick figure holding a stick in his hand, 
and the person next to them is missing the middle part. They just have their arms and their legs. And the guy who's holding the stick says, I have your back. I got your back. Right? Now, that's not the I have your back type of picture that we're to have. This is more of a military I've got your back where you have your sword and they have their sword and they're back to back and they're ready to go to battle together. If you want to get into the military term, it's I've got your six. Now, some of you are like, what does that even mean? Look at a clock, okay? Twelve is up and six is back. So that means I've got your six. I've got your back. We're going to battle together. This is what we are to do in love. And one of the things when it comes to the idea of demanding from is that sometimes in marriage or in other relationships, what we do is we say, you're going to get my back and I'm going to get my back. So the other person is completely exposed to getting hurt, wounded, beat down. That's what demanding from looks like. We are not to demand from. We are to do for. I love what C.S. Lewis says. Some of you may or may not know C.S. Lewis. But he talks about the importance of loving God in in order to love one another. He says this. Excuse me. You cannot love a fellow creature fully until you love God. You cannot love a fellow creature fully until you love God. So if we are to love where we are not demanding from, but doing for, our primary thing as a believer to do is to know God so that we can know love. When we know God, we know love. You cannot love a fellow creature fully until you love God. David Benner, uh, the author of a book called Surrender to Love, says this, Once we truly encounter perfect love and the kingdom plan to make this love the rule, not only of heaven but of earth, surrender is less an act of volition than an impulse of love. When we fully understand what God has done for us, the God of all creation, He did for And when that love transforms us, we can't help but walk in the same love. We cannot help but love our brother and sister. We cannot help but love God more and walk in obedience. This is a powerful truth and reality of what Scripture teaches to us. So the question when we say, how do we practice scary love? First and foremost, we must love God. If you do not know God, you cannot know love. Now, the world doesn't like to hear that type of statement because they want to believe that they have the corner market on love. They want to have all of these videos and books on romance and love and all these different things, but it is all meaningless without God at the center of it. Love, in order to understand it and to live it, is to know God. So I challenge you, if you are to recognize that love is sacrifice, sacrifice your time to get to know God more. Spend time in His Word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time developing your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when you focus on that, when you develop that, you will be a better lover of your brother and sister. 
it will be a natural response. I've often said that sometimes when I haven't been spending enough time in the Word and spending time with Jesus, it leaks out into how I treat my family. And my wife will often ask the question, have you been spending time with Jesus lately? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. But when we spend time with Jesus, it changes who we are. It changes how we love. Knowledge of God creates knowledge of love. And as Paul is talking about this consistently in the book of 1 Corinthians, he makes this point over and over and over again. Love is not about you. Love is not about you. Love is not about me. But this is so countercultural. The idea of love is, is we think of something that we feel. We think of love as something that we experience. We think of love as something that just, mm, I, I love. But we, if we live real life, we recognize that it's not always going to feel good. When you're married or have children or live in your home with your parents, you recognize that there are moments where you don't feel good. <laughs> Things get frustrating. People don't always treat us the way that we demand for them to treat us. You should always be nice to me. Well, I mean, that's just not going to happen. Because some people don't get enough sleep, and they wake up, and they're not so fun to be around. Some people, they must have eaten the wrong steak or something, and they're just angry. Whatever it is, some things in our lives, we, we can't always love perfectly. Only God can be perfect love. But in that moment, we recognize that love is not about me. So love is scary because we relinquish the, the keys to the kingdom of self. We are willing to sacrifice rather than demand from, we're willing to do for. But love is also scary because true love is good-tempered, not grumpy. What? Love is not irritable. It's right there in the Bible. Don't, don't come at me. Love is not irritable. Now, the irritability he's talking about here is the constant testiness that we have. If you walk through life, and every time you walk into a space of a Christian community or with your family or whatever it is, and you just have this constant air of testiness where everything irritates you, even the way that person is picking their nose in church. I'm not going to name names. And you're just like, oh, every time I come to church in person, oh, that person, right? You might think about something that they did a year ago. Oh, I can't believe it. I have to sit next to that person again. Or, you know, like you wake up and you roll over and you look at your spouse and you automatically feel irritated. That's not a healthy marriage. Just saying, that's not love. Love is not irritable. It is not grumpy. Love is good-tempered. Now, are we perfect? No, we're not perfect. Will we be grumpy sometimes? Yeah. Will people be grumpy with us? Yeah, me probably more than you. I make people grumpy all the time. It's just what I do. Good-tempered. Love is not irritable. It is not easily made grumpy. It's important for us to also remember the wise words of Miss Patty. If you're grumpy, 
You ain't grateful. What do I mean by that? What does she mean by that? In this instance, if we are constantly living in gratitude for the person next to us, even if it's a small thing, like they didn't pick their nose today. Thank you, Jesus. If we can thank God for the person next to us, it changes our attitude. If we can look and say, wow, I am so grateful for that person who used to irritate me, but I'm glad that they are constantly serving Jesus, that they are constantly coming to church, that they are worshiping the Lord. It doesn't matter who it is, the person next to you, your spouse, your sibling, your dad, your, your, your kids. If we walk in gratitude, it changes how we feel about people. We can live with a less irritable type of love if we walk in more gratitude. Even just gratitude with what God gives you, where you say, I woke up this morning. My feet hit the ground. I have breath in my lungs. I have a car that can get me to work. Even if it's a jalopy, I can still get there. If we walk in gratitude, it changes how we live our lives. Have you found yourself irritable lately? Have you found people that you're supposed to love just grinding your gears? You're not walking in the fullness of love that we're called to. And we need the Holy Spirit's help. Because people are irritable. And people are irritating. Am I right? And so in order to live and walk in the love that God has called us to, we need to ask the Holy Spirit, give me gratitude over grumpiness. Help me to love those that are really hard to love. And as we look at this other aspect, we see that it is sacrificial of self, that we are not to be grumpy. True love does not keep score. True love does not keep score. Love is not resentful, which in the NIV means it keeps no record of wrongs. Sometimes in our relationships... It's really easy to keep score. You may not do this physically, but a lot of times you'll do this mentally. When someone who you're called to love hurts you, wounds you, says something, looks at you funny, you might mentally make a tally sheet and say, okay, Henry did this on, you know, 11-2-1999, that person did that. And we have a list, a long list in our mind. And that's not forgiveness, as we talked about last week. If we have a tally of all of the things that people have done against us, that's not forgiveness. That's resentment. That is holding something against them. That is keeping a score. And you might not have that tally sheet physically, but you often have it mentally. We might say that we forgive someone, but 10 years down the road, they might do something very similar to what they did 10 years ago. And we might get into an argument with this person, and we might say, do you remember you did the same thing 10 years ago on September 12, 1976? You, you did this. Did you really forgive? You know, you were keeping score. Now, this can happen in every aspect, right? You know, we can look at, at, at people's Facebook posts. This person said something that I know they were talking about me, so I'm not going to talk to them anymore. 
I'm going to keep this tally sheet. Or let's just bring it a little bit closer to home, right? Let's just utilize marriage for a moment. Because it's, it's one of those life-on-life, constantly-in-your-face types of things. Henry and Henrietta are married. Just say that. Henrietta wakes up and sees that the dishes are dirty. Henry did not do the dishes. She goes home after work, after a hard day, and sees that the trash is full and nothing has been done. Henry did not take out the trash. And she goes to bed, and, and, and Henry forgets to say, I love you. Henry did not say, I love you. And Henrietta, the other thing, wow, you know, Henrietta was really, when I was driving, she just kept telling me how bad a driver I was. She wasn't willing to drive, but she was telling me how I should drive, right, on the list. So on and so on and so on and so on and so on, and that creates deep, bitter resentment for one another. Some of the things are silly. Some of them, those things are serious, but we keep that scorecard, and it creates deep bitterness. But if we are to truly forgive, we do not keep a scorecard. We rip it up in our mind. We tear it up. And this is how God treats us. When he forgives, it's for good. We see in Psalm 103.12 of this truth, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know what's interesting about how we treat one another in this aspect is that we're more willing to have a scorecard of all the bad things and nothing good shows up on that scorecard. And so we only dwell on the negative of other people. We only dwell on what they've done to us rather than even looking at what they've done for us. And so when we look at a pro-con sheet of our relationship, the bad just seriously outweighs the good. And so we say, well, that person needs to be out of my life because this bad list is really long. And the good list is really short. But if we're walking in gratitude and we're thinking through this, op- this idea of working together and loving together, throwing away a scorecard, dwelling on the positive creates pleasant partnership. Dwelling on the positive creates pleasant partnership. And this also plays into the idea of gratitude. Man, when, when someone does something, that's loving for you. Thank them for it. Don't just take it for granted. Well, yeah, I've been waiting for you to do that for five years. Jeez, it's about time. Or as Pittsburgh dad would say, Jeez, a ways. I mean, we, we look at this and we, we say, Yeah, of course, this makes so much sense. But it's not easy to live out. The love that we're called to from Scripture is not easy. That's what makes it scary. When you and I are to sacrifice ourselves, maybe not in the same way that Maximilian Kolbe sacrificed himself for those who were in Auschwitz, but when we're called to sacrifice ourselves, when we're called to not hold things against other people, when we're called to rip up the scorecard, when we're called to live for rather than demand from, That's not easy. But I tell you, it is what we are called to do. God wants to expose in our own hearts the areas where we are not loving. If you have a scorecard against someone, rip it up. 
If you have been demanding from rather than living for, ask the Spirit to give you the ability to change. If you have found yourself consistently irritated with someone, choose gratitude over grumpiness. This is the love we are called to. This is the love that we are marked by as believers. It's scary. It's hard. It's not easy. But it's vital. This selfless love does not exist in our culture today. And that's why we're called to live counter-culturally. On several levels, we are called to live counter to our current culture. But love is the main way we push back against the darkness in our culture. We will be known as his disciples by how we love one another. I hope you've been as convicted as I have been. Not because I want you to suffer, but because I believe that God desires for us to change. If we are looking at our church for a place of community, of discipleship, of living in the Spirit and in the Word, and living in worship, we have got to be loving. It begins and ends with love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you love us. We thank you for how we do not deserve the love that you have given, yet you give it. I pray that I will be someone who sacrifices myself, who does for rather than demands from. I pray that I will be a person who seeks gratitude over grumpiness, and that I will be a person who rips up every scorecard that I may have, that I may walk in the love that you have for me to walk in. In your name, amen and amen.